Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer White. Hi, Jen. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? I am excellent. Oh, nice. Um, so the hey, random... Mr. Burns, though. Excellent. Yeah, that kind of excellent. right? You like, <laughs> have your fingers together, I see. Totally. Um, your question of the day today is, how? Well, what's the dumbest way you've injured yourself? Um, I, I will have all the listeners know that when Ellen came up with the idea for this one, I said, are you really sure you want to share this? And she went, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to her second. But um, yeah, uh, my dumbest way is uh, we had, it was when we lived in London. We had just, we'd been there for about a year and we were going in to go see the sites, to see the Christmas lights, all this stuff, you know, a trip we made a million times. And we were, came up out of the tube, walking across the street. We weren't running. We were casually strolling across the street and mm. I stepped up on a curb. And I, boom, just like fell because it felt like my ankle like shocked, like it rolled is what it, it had that feeling. And I just like hit the ground because of the pain. And I was like, and you know, of course, Ryan's like, oh my God. And I was like, I, I said, I'm fine. I just twisted my ankle, you know, like, because I have super loose joints. It happens all the time. And <laughs> no, no, I had not. I had actually um, spiral fractured. Um, my foot. So. so is your stepping off the curb the cover for when you were running towards the barrier in the tube for platform nine and three quarters? Is that the true story? Totally. I just led with the outside of my foot. Yeah, uh-huh. that's mm-hmm. totally what I was doing. Um, but I was actually at the Baker Street station, so I was in the wrong station. Uh, maybe that's the issue. Why you didn't right, go through. right. No. Yeah, so um, I did end up walking, even though it was broken, which I didn't know at the time. I walked the rest of the way to our destination oh. of lunch, which was we were very we needed some American food, and a Chipotle had just opened, so we were very excited to go nice. get Chipotle. Uh, and know. was was it the same as in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, totally the same. Oh, so cool. we got our little American fix, and then um, I realized I was in dire pain and probably needed to get to hospital. Oh. <laughs> so, all right, what about you? What is your? Oh, I can't uh, think of any dumb ways. I've wait. It's because um, you don't you, remember them. Mm, you can't think mm, of them. Mm. So what? What's your memory of my dumbest way I've injured myself? I mean, my memory <laughs> has like it's more of like the sister side of the memory. Yeah. Um, that um, you were studying. Did, did I tell you how? So I, I just called you and told you from Russia or what? Did, what yeah, you happened? called me. You called me from Russia, not because you needed to call to tell me because you needed support, but because you needed money. Oh yeah, <laughs> fair. I mean, you were a poor college student, so I, that's totally fair. Um, yeah, so that's my recollection of how I found out because I was like, um, you have to call Dad, not me, for this one. Oh. Um, so yeah. are you, you going to tell or am I going to tell what what you told me? Uh, you can tell. <laughs> um, my understanding was that Ellen was out at a party in Russia where she was studying for her undergrad degree um, and may have been dancing on a table and allegedly, because she's an attorney now, so we'll just keep saying allegedly to everything, right? And allegedly fell off said table and broke her leg. Yeah, I think it was a bar. It was actually like a famous 
car oh. for its wackiness um, in oh. Moscow. But I don't remember the evening, unfortunately. <laughs> or for the best, I don't know. But I definitely did crack my, I don't know, I think I had a crack in my ankle or something. Uh, and the one thing that I thought was very strange in Russia, which I guess is common in other countries, is people don't go out on the streets on crutches like they just live in the hospital until they're better unlike the u.s where they're like they don't want you in the hospital where they boot you out of the hospital in five so minutes. people i got lots of people staring at me on crutches and luckily it was only um you know like not a full break so I, it wasn't too long that I was off but it was it was pretty awkward for a few weeks wow all right. Well, yes. So, I, I, I mean, I think they're both equally embarrassing. So, mm. <laughs> and both, both in different countries. Or Interesting. Yeah. Yes, we do like to injure yeah. ourselves in other countries. Safer in the U.S. We are experienced in other countries' healthcare. Uh, right. Right. Um, and I guess we won't go into the fact that my doctor disappeared. My my ankle doctor. But that's a whole other no. story. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah, that's that's mm. probably for a true crime podcast or something. We'll have to start right? a new podcast. Very suspicious. Um, right. Okay, but this is a really good, super fascinating episode. So let's get to our interview and all three of our guests. Welcome to the podcast, Ian, Alan, and Jeremy. Ian is the author of Three Dads and a Baby that tells a story of his family journey with his partners, Jeremy and Alan. Welcome to the show, all of you. Thank you for joining us. Do you guys want to say hi? Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> hi. Uh, thanks. Um, Hello. I, first off, I love you, you guys all have such interesting professions and background. Do you guys want to each do a quick introduction to just tell a little bit about yourself? Do you want to, Ian, do you want to start? You sure. I'm, I'm a hospital doctor most of the time, and I work with some medical education and uh, quality improvement at my hospital. Uh, but the family stuff is more fun. <laughs> and we'll, True, go, we'll, but... save, we'll save the best for last. So, Alan, how about you go next? Because I, I personally think Jeremy has the most interesting profession. We get that, we get that a lot, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. I grew up in Colorado in a pretty conservative nice. family. Um, my parents were pretty staunch Catholics growing up and we grew up in this bedroom community right outside of the Air Force Academy so there's a lot of uh, El Paso County there's a lot of like evangelicals and um, focus on the yeah. family is nearby yeah. stuff like that and I went to medical school and didn't really know what I wanted to do and I bumped my way into psychiatry and I thought oh this is so interesting and then I thought oh please let me like anything else but at the end of the day, I still really enjoyed it. So I'm a psychiatrist in San Diego, and I've been doing that now for, gosh, I mean, I graduated medical school in 2004, so a long time. Love it. Jeremy, how about you? Uh, so I grew up in Montana as a pastor's son in a small town in Montana, wow. and my entire life I wanted to work with animals. I always, since I was really little, was like, I'm working at a zoo someday. And I basically just made that happen. So right out of college, when I was 22 years old, I started working for the San Diego Zoo. And I actually started working for them out in Hawaii. And I did uh, avian conservation of really critically endangered Hawaiian birds. And I did conservation work for seven years with the San Diego Zoo. And then I was tired of living on an island. And I um, <laughs> then went to actually work in zoo proper, at the zoo proper here in San Diego. And I am a uh, the lead zookeeper for the veterinary hospital. And I've been doing that for 12 years now. 
I love it. And especially your extreme religious background, can you kind of share um, how that definitely led to your very traditional family formation? Who, want, who wants to tell the story of everyone meeting each other? Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, just to throw out there, we are what's called a thruple or a triad or a polyamorous relationship. So the three of us have been in a committed relationship Um for 11 years now, since 2012. And uh, Alan and Ian were together for 10 years before that. So they are have just hit the 20 year milestone. Um, <clears throat> so it's definitely unconventional. I mean, Alan and I were both ways very, both raised very religious. So I think it can seem like it's a big stretch and it is a big stretch um, to be in a relationship like this. I do think that it's slightly easier for gay men because especially if you are raised religious, you already kind of feel like you're fringe and you feel like you have an unconventional relationship just by being gay. So this is just one little step further. I'm yeah. sure it didn't feel like that initially to our parents, but um, I do think that it is easier for gay men to make that jump compared to like a heteronormative straight couple because we already feel like we are a little bit outside of the societal norms. Yeah. And how did your parents feel? Uh, well, I'll, I'll finish off with mine. So my parents, I came out very late to my parents. Um, I mean, I came out late to myself because I was, I was a pastor's son. I was very religious. I went to a Christian college in a small town in Idaho. Um, and so I didn't really accept that I was gay until I was in my mid twenties. That's when I first started dating someone and I didn't come out to my parents until I was 30. So I had already been in a serious relationship um, before, and my parents just lived across the country at that point. So it was easy to kind of just uh, be in denial about having to tell them. And then I came out to my mom on Mother's Day in 2012, and then I <laughs> Happy met Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, and then I met Ian and Alan in June of 2012. So oh, wow. I was like, well, shit. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, or excuse me, well, crap. So I, um, I, you know, it was traumatic enough for my parent, for my mom in particular. My dad has always handled it really well. My dad responded with, it might not be what I would have chosen for you, but I'll always love you no matter what. My mom did a like, please stop choosing to be gay um, moment. So that was, you know, we had a, we had a rocky rebuild from that. And I didn't tell them about Alan and Ian until I was really secure in our relationship. So I think it was about a year in where I felt like, okay, these two people are my family. And if my family, you know, has nothing else to do with me, I have these two to, to fall back on. And yeah. so I told my parents, my mom did in fact respond with, I never want to see or talk to you again, which is very hard because we're really close, but actually not that hard at that point because I did have Alan and Ian, I'd moved in with them and yeah. I felt like, okay, well, I have a nice life. I think I'm a good person. And at this point, I'm okay. And you might need me more than I need you at this point. So, and I just responded with like, okay, I'm sorry you feel that way. And let me know if you ever want to talk. And um, several months later, we kind of started talking a bit. And then Ian very nicely invited my parents out uh, over the holidays that year in December. And it was a little bit awkward, um, but it has been all uphill since then. Um, my parents, it's, it's very easy to like Alan and Ian. They're 
attractive, intelligent physicians and what parent doesn't want that for their child. (laughs) So um, they definitely came on board. And then once we had children, it was just signed, sealed, and delivered. They were all in. I mean, my, <laughs> uh, our daughter is genetically my child. So our daughter, Piper, who is six, is genetically mine. And my mom has always wanted a daughter. And now to have her Aww. one and only grandchild or one and only granddaughter be um, be Piper, she just, I mean, we can, like, it's just, yeah, there's, we, we, we can't get rid of them at this point. <laughs> whether you're <laughs> what you're So we see them all the time. They are flying out in a few weeks just to help us with some childcare. When I'm at a conference, mm-hmm. they, we, they see the kids three or four times a year. So it's great. That's amazing. That's great. I, I want to throw in something about yeah. uh, the family, especially Renee, because it's difficult. Renee, Renee is Jeremy's mom. Yes. All right. Uh, difficult to come to terms with something like this when it's, when it's not how you were raised and it's not culturally what you're used to. And it's also not something that's easy for people to share, but I was just so impressed that, uh, Jeremy's mother was able to let us tell that whole story, including some very painful parts of that story in the book. Um, and I feel like that's an amazing gift because it really can show both kids and parents that uh, there is a way forward if you seem to be stuck. And it may take some time and there may be some you know, growing pains, but you can forge this wonderful relationship and come to a new understanding with your previously uh, religious conservative parents. Yeah. And so that's Ian, great. since you're talking, I'll say let's talk about your family and how <laughs> your evolution to where you are with your, your throuple is with your family. Yeah. Well, I have this weird situation. I never knew my parents to be married and I spent the first part of my life with my father and stepmother. And then they had an agreement that I was just going to go move and live with my mother after that, which was kind of weird to sort of like split someone's childhood that way. Um, I, I didn't know anything different, but like, they're like, Hey, now you're moving to live with your mom. Um, Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one thing about it was, you know, like a lot of people like, Oh my gosh, your kid has three parents. That's so weird. And I'm like, I I have three parents. I mean, I, my father Mm -hmm. and my stepmother raised me and my mother's my mother. So Ah, it's not that different. Like there's a lot of different families out there, different structures and everything. But, um, my, uh, my mother and I initially had a little bit of friction about me coming out. She wasn't super lovey-dovey about that, but she's gone 180 on it. And now I can't stop her from messaging uh, me things about uh, news and advocacy and, and being an ally and stuff like that. So she's uh, all in for that, which I appreciate. And my dad and stepmom, just sort of like a non-issue for them. And all three of them, when, we, when I announced like, you know, Jeremy had joined our relationship, they were just like, oh, and, you know, we, we finished dinner and it's been a non-issue since they just, it's sort of like, uh, you meet a family that has three kids instead of two kids and it, it's sort of a non-issue and that's kind of how it played out for, for my side. So it was actually really easy. Nice. That's great. Alan. Yeah, I'd say my experience was, um, overall pretty positive in the scheme of how these things can go. I came out to my parents, um, let's see, at the end of college, but before I started med school. And it was definitely one of those things where, like, I don't think it was a surprise to my parents telling them, you know. Um, I don't think they were like, oh, shocker. Um, but uh, <laughs> they, I, they also had a typical response of, like, are you sure? How do you know? Have you really tried being with a woman? You know, the, the, that kind of thing, which I think is a really common um, reaction to get. And, you know, me being... I think a little bit older since I'd finished college of being just self-confident of like, well, I know myself and this is how it is. And, you know, they, they very much, 
I think then accepted that and we moved forward and they've always yeah. been really accepting of Ian. And, um, when they, when I told them about Jeremy and, um, you know, they had met him before and thought he was really nice. Um, but at that point they didn't know that we were dating. And when I told them, you know, it was, uh, they, they, my mom was just like, Oh, wow. That's, uh, interesting. You know, thanks for telling me, I guess, you know, no one's really cheating on each other. You've, you've are open about it. So yeah. Okay. You know, she, she kind of got with it there. And my dad was like, huh, that's interesting. It, it doesn't kind of comport with what I think of as like the terms of like fidelity in a relationship, but, um, you know, you know okay. And, you know, they, so they kind of <laughs> express some surprise and then just kind of, I, I call it like, they just kind of got with the program, you know? And I agree with yeah. Jeremy. I mean, when you're giving them grandchildren, that it's so easy to quickly get attached to children, mm -hmm. you know, that it's sort of like, ooh, contract signed, sealed, and delivered. But there must you, have been. We do kind of love the babies. <laughs> yeah. There must be like a 10 year period, right? Where they're like, oh, you know, no chance of grandkids or maybe thinking along those lines. What well, were. Yeah, I'm, I'd say not even for, just for them, but for us as well. You know, um, yeah. I. I as a growing up as a gay man and maybe maybe now it's a slightly different era but you know Ian and I grew up in the 80s and thinking like oh um it just wasn't a thing that was visible it didn't seem like a thing that was yeah. done um there were very few if any gay role models on tv when gay people were in stories they tended to be like either mentally insane or villains or something like that and so um you know you just don't you, when you can't see yourself it's hard to imagine where you can go and so yeah. i think um you know after ian and i had been together for a while and i had always wanted kids and thought oh i guess we could do that and ian to me had seemed when we talked about it kind of indifferent like oh we could do that mm. if you want and i just thought like oh well, i'm not gonna have a child with someone who's indifferent about having a child that sounds yeah. like a disaster <laughs> um, and you know, and then we were getting old, you know, I was approaching 40 and thought like, oh, well, I guess it's not going to happen. It would have happened. All of our straight friends with kids, you know, they're all, all growing up at this point. It seemed like that ship had sailed. And I think when Jeremy entered the relationship, it was just a totally like it changed the dynamic. It was sort of like, oh, the appellate court channel panel changed. And now, now we've got the votes <laughs> and it felt like a little bit more secure in the sense of, oh, if, you know, maybe this could be possible. But even with, with Jeremy, initially, it wasn't a thing where we thought we should do it. We just were happy in our lives and we're having this, you know, yeah. great life in San Diego and thought, didn't think too much of it. And, you know, one of Jeremy's um, coworkers, uh, sisters approached him and said, hey, I've got embryos that are frozen and I think you guys would make excellent dads. Would you, have you ever thought about being a father? And so she really planted the seed mm. that kind of was this catalyst for us to thinking like, oh, gosh, like an outside person thought that. And we just thought like, oh, we're in a throuple, you know, I guess we won't have kids and we're getting older. And I'd say, so that, yeah. that in my mind was the genesis, the catalyst to make us actually seriously start considering it. And, and, and I don't want to give away the book, yeah. but who was on board and who wasn't on board at the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's at the beginning. So I guess this is interesting because I remember Alan and I both being ambivalent about kids and sort of saying we would really like to have kids in our lives. And for me, especially a kid more than a baby, um, because I wanted like a little person that I would, you know, do hobbies and maybe some sports or writing, reading, that sort of stuff with. Um, and we both were sort of thinking like, oh, but there's a big barrier, you know, like that's actually a lot of work. It could be very expensive. And we wanted to be completely sure that was kind of the thing. So after we got that embryo offer, that's really what kind of changed it. Cause we had talked about like with whom, you know, like there, there have to be women involved or there yeah, won't be any babies. Right. And we didn't want to work with strangers. 
And so it just hadn't gone anywhere until that offer came through. And then we just went on a long walk. We talked about our goals for kids um, and like absolute commitment to giving them the best life that they could lead, making sure we were on the same page on our parenting goals um, and uh, kind of decided, yes, we're in. And um, it, I mean, it, there was a process, especially in getting the, um, the, the donors to really commit and say like, yes, we're giving up these embryos that we created. That's a big step, you know? So they understandably took some time to think about it. We wouldn't have wanted it any other way. So that process took a while, but as far as our like a decision, like, yeah, we're in, we're in for this. Let's try to make it happen. Um, that kind of came together pretty quickly, actually. Although you guys were really thoughtful is what, and even just by what you're saying, and which I think is funny because it, it, goes very nicely with the refrain in your book that basically any teenager on the end of the cul-de-sac can have sex in the back of a truck right and get pregnant and then you guys had to really think through all of these goals and talk through it and make sure that you were okay with all of those things so very different very thoughtful parenting which i i really enjoyed seeing in reading about your process behind all of that as you guys went through it yeah, this yep. is Alan. I'd, I would agree with that too. I would say um, I, I probably had the most hesitation of being saying, oh, we're in a throuple and should we have kids? You know, because I just thought, oh, that's might be such a barrier or might be such a burden for a child. And there's so much like that sounds like it could be legally fraught and uncertain. And, you know, I just really wanted to make sure that that that, that was a good idea to do and that realizing that I can't really insulate against everything in life, you know? So it, I would say it took me like a little bit more of an internal process of saying like, okay, well, we can do it. Should we do it? And that, so, but you're right in the sense that yeah. it speaks to any, not even just us, somebody who's having a child through some kind of assistive technology is, you know, you have to have a child with intention, which is for better or worse, a lot different than the way most children are naturally made um, in the right. world sometimes. And so I think just our story really speaks to, you know, we we didn't fit into like a usual mold. And while we, through a lot of struggles and effort, made it happen, it was really like an in intention and motivation to, to keep to keep it going, to keep to keep the ball moving, if that makes sense. And so, you know, I, I do think our story speaks to that pretty well. And not to ruin the embryo donation part, but fast forwarding, you did instead work with a donor and a surrogate. Do you want to share a bit about how they came into your lives in this in this capacity and that those relationships? Uh, yeah, this is Jeremy. So um, <clears throat> really quickly, we started with donated embryos. They would have been full siblings of a friend of mine that lived across town. And we found a surrogate who was a, a friend of Alan's who volunteered and um, she offered to carry our children and we implanted the one embryo that we received that was viable and then unfortunately it didn't take. And it was a huge pivot and a reset. Um, we had been working basically for a year and then it's just one blood test and nope, you're not pregnant and you can't help but feel like, oh, can you please test again? Right. So um, it was really our surrogate who was like, okay, well, what's the next plan? Because you guys are having kids, so what are we doing? And um, then Alan ended up – well, Alan, you want to talk about finding Megan? Yeah, I, um, I had a childhood friend that we've been really good close friends with since we were seven. And um, 
had grown up with. And even when we were little, used to joke about kind of, well, I guess not joke, have kids, you know, kids all at that young age say, of course, I'm marrying you. And of course, this is what's happening. And so, you know, we had that as children. But then as, as we grew older, we were the kind of friends where we might see each other only once or twice a year living in different spots. But it always was just like, easy rapport, pick it right back up, you know, just this deep security in our friendship. And she and I had gone to our um, 20th high school reunion. And I had mentioned what we were doing with a with this um, embryo donation and wasn't working out and the surrogacy and what we were thinking about doing. And it's like, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, what, what our next steps are, you know, what we're going to do, you know, I guess, you know, cause it was kind of hard and devastating to have put so much effort and have it not work out. And, um, yeah. you know, and I sort of in a lighthearted way of saying like, you know, I think, I guess we'll just like pick a Brazilian model out of a catalog and call it a day, <laughs> but you know, it would be nice to have, you know, I've, I've always been a fan of like open adoption. There's been adoption in my family before. And, you know, that's the concept of like, you know, where you came from. There's not like a hidden reveal. The parentage isn't kept secret. Um, and I think that I always thought that if I could choose, since there's, you know, we have this interesting ability to make a bunch of intentional parenting decisions on our path to parenthood, that yeah. if, if I, if my kids could know who their mom was, since they're going to be, have three dads, it would be, I think it would be nice for them to not know, to just know, here's how I was made, here I, here's where I came from. It'd be nice if our siblings could be related, if we could choose all that stuff. And so, you know, my friend really stepped forward and was like, Hey, would you, you know, I'm, a, I know we're getting a little bit older, but would you consider me, you know, you know, and after she thought, she thought about it and talked to her, her supports and stuff. And she mm -hmm. said, yeah, I would do that for you. You know, so she she's um, was older. She was in a, a lesbian relationship at the time. She, I think she had thought, like, maybe I'm not going to be able to, maybe kids aren't going to happen for me otherwise. And we'd always been so close. And so I think there was an appeal to her to do it and to, to give this gift to us. So, you know, to me, I think having a, a my coworker that, you know, we were never super, even super close. And she was just like the kind of woman that's like, oh, I'm a good pregnant. I like the way I feel when I'm pregnant. It feels good to me. I think you'd be great at being a father. I think you guys should do this. I'll do this for you. And my friend come out, you know, I think our story speaks yeah. to sort of the, the largesse and generosity of women like that made it possible. Like, so that's one thing that as a gay man, like I always think, oh, I'm progressive and I'm a feminist and all this stuff. But really having kids and through this process has also really, I feel like attune my eyes even more to like, oh, the stuff that women do that can go unnoticed and like that our family couldn't exist, but for, for like that generosity of women. That's incredible to have those people in your life willing to step up in such an uh, amazing way. How did things go? Well, it was an adventure. <laughs> uh, I, was like, I was like, that was a big Read question. the book. <laughs> Read the book and you'll find out. Yeah, so a uh, tremendous roller coaster, actually. And there were a combination of uh, like health issues, social issues, legal issues. One of the ones that was perhaps least expected on my part was uh, an issue related to Zika virus in our clinic. Because, you know, uh, Megan was coming from Argentina. And there was then concern that um, she could be exposed to Zika, and then that would, uh, of course, create a risk for birth defects in the child if nobody wanted that. But our analysis was that she was as far away from Zika in Argentina as we were from Zika in the United States, where some cases had been confirmed transmitted. Um, and then this was shared with our doctor, who also said she wasn't worried about uh, transmission and that we could proceed. I actually also spoke to an infectious disease specialist who was a colleague of mine, 
And she said, you don't even need to do any testing. Just proceed. There's no risk. So um, at this point, uh, Delilah, our surrogate, is doing injections to get ready for implantation. Megan has her uh, plane tickets. She's scheduled to come in from Argentina to do the donation. And our doctor wanted like one last visit to sort of discuss things. We weren't really sure what the context was. And we went in and they, they actually seated an additional person that refused to identify herself like behind us during the discussion, which was really awkward. Weird. Really yeah. weird. And we were like, what is your role? And she's like, we, we help out in the clinic. I'm like, I don't know what that mm. means. Well, the doctor proceeded to say, you know, Megan is going to need to isolate or quarantine in the United States for a very long time before she's allowed to, uh, to donate eggs because of the Zika risk. And we were like, what happened? Um, and the doctor said, you know, oh, we, we spoke to some infectious disease specialist who said that this is required. And I'm like, but that's not what your professional guidelines say. And I had printed them out. Like, here they are. It says to do X, Y, and Z. This is what we should do instead. And they're like, no, no, our expert. So I said, well, where was this expert? You know, who did you speak to? Well, I don't remember the name. I was like, well, was that a doctor at my institution? Yes. Uh, okay. Was it male or female? Female. Um, was that person, you know, did, did she have an Italian accent? And they were like, yes. And I was like, well, that's that's my colleague, you know, um, she's the <laughs> director of our, totally fine. <laughs> of our Zika response. And just yesterday, she told me over a half an hour conversation, we didn't need to do anything at all. And it became clear the doctor had invented this story as a reason wow. not to proceed with our implantation, which was shocking. Um, and we were left in this lurch of like, we're supposed to do this right now. Um, and so we're like, goodbye, we're not working with you anymore, uh, obviously. It's, it's so and nonsensical, too. Like, if you're, I'll just sign whatever waiver, we, we've, you know, we've right. looked we at the take risk, the risk we're on. fine yeah. with it. Absolutely. And we, we said that, you know, like, there is there is no risk, but if you want us to assume it, like, let us do that. Um, and they were like, no, we're not moving forward. So Jeremy um, got on the phone and was magically able to find us a wonderful new doctor uh, within, uh, like, I think, 24, 48 hours, something like that. And um, wow. yeah, it was incredible. And then this doctor was just a gift, uh, basically said like, I'm not here to judge you or to um, evaluate your rationale for uh, being a parent. Um, he said that he had taken a, a gay couple um, from the same clinic we were at uh, that had been turned away for unclear reasons as well. And we were, you know, just disheartened by that. He's like, I'm not here. You're obviously, if you're here, you have resources and you want to be a parent and that's my job is to help you. And we were like, thank you. Um, and he said like, yeah, I'll let the a specialist decide what the risk of Zika is. And if they say to proceed, we proceed. So that was that. That was for me, one of the craziest hurdles. Wow. So frustrating and crazy. Okay. Let's talk about one other really fun hurdle. Um, is that, sorry if you guys know, I'm a lawyer, right? So um, legal, so fun, right? Like one of the best parts. No. <laughs> I mean, somebody somebody had to keep the economy going in San Diego. So I guess it was us and our eight eight lawyers that we paid for. Yeah, I, I will say your your book was a bit harsh against lawyers at times. I'll just, I'll just note that. Um, yeah, but I feel like it was also just very revolutionary that um, having three parents uh, named on a birth certificate to have legal rights. Um, can you talk about a little bit about that that journey? Who wants Don't, to build that? Everyone, everyone's like, yeah. oh, the legal piece. God, no. yeah, like, it's, like, it's, talk about it. <laughs> I mean, it's another big conversation. I, I said, say, where to even start? Because it's such a big question. I guess, you know, to be fair, 
to lawyers and to the reproductive, our first doctor, you know. You don't have mm-hmm. to be fair to them. It's okay. In, yeah. Hey, we have Just, feelings too. Yeah, you're people too. Let me try to be gracious. Yeah, thank um, you. So, you know, I think when we first started the journey, you know, we there's only an existing framework of how to do it. You know, there's a sperm donor, there's an egg donor, there's the, that kind of leg- laws are, are kind of well-established. The, you know, surrogacy law is less well-established and, you know, all the stuff that we were advised. Um, and so I think we were just trying to fit in with the system that exists. We didn't, we weren't setting out to be a trailblazer. We just wanted cute kids like everybody else. Um, and so, you know, our attorney that we initially had was like, Oh, there. You know, we we only thought like, oh, there can be two parents on the birth certificate. So Jeremy and I had first initially tried to do that, and then Ian was going to be a sperm donor, but he needed his separate representation because none of us are married. We each would all these steps were required to have our own individual lawyers, and um, they uh, Ian's lawyer rightly so at the time was like, no, you can't be a sperm donor. Like that's that's not representing your intent, and I think that would be that would be really hazard that'd be that that would put you in jeopardy for what you're describing what your situation is and from our lawyer's standpoint you know the one jeremy and i had consulted was like well this is going to bring everything to a halt and it we just felt like this incredible pressure to just sign and conform to the system and just say like and outside of that we'll make a separate parenting parentage agreement and they'll we each three of us each had to have separate different lawyers to do that. And somehow that that would maybe cover us and hope that that would hold up in court if everything blew up in the end. So it was kind of stressful because it felt like, Oh, we have these competing legal advice. The clinics have their own opinion. You know, I think that, um, so, so we had started that way. And when, when the embryos didn't take and we were going to create our own, that's where we were like, well, let's really bring Ian into the fold. We want all of us to have a chance to be able to create embryos. Let's really try to do this because there's now these additional legal considerations when we're creating our own embryos. And um, that was really where, when Ian's lawyer was like, put the brakes on that and said, don't do that, so that we just kind of had to regroup. But I will say it was really stressful. I think it freaked the reproductive <laughs> clinic out. So even though they said Zika, you know, I can't prove it. I Maybe think that, that I, I think that yeah. I think it was the stress of like, oh, there's three. And they told us, that's fine. And we'll work with you. And we understand. But it didn't seem that way. So, you know, I, I can't mm. prove or deny, you know, I, I can't right. confirm anything. But I think I have a sense that once there was three of us, now there were reasons to be found to not proceed that didn't make sense scientifically based on what, you know, we had discussed with the clinic before. So that was my impression. Um, and the lady that Ian didn't reference that was in the meeting with us was ended up being sort of like their risk manager who never reintroduced herself, <laughs> but then also did clinic operations, but was like, it was so, and, and we're, we're professionals, you know, like if we can't navigate that scenario, how could you know, just regular patients be doing that. So that's what I always think. Like we're yeah. well-resourced, we're informed. Um, and that was a big challenge for us to do that. So, I mean, long story short, it was really like the involvement of the lawyers who really were meant legally to re- represent our specific interests that really slowly, bit by bit, person by person with differing opinions kind of steered us towards, no, you guys should maybe try to craft something that does protect your interests and does better represent your intent to be equal parents. Um, and so that's really how that came along. And, and some lawyers pointed us to specific lawyers they thought would be good for our case in, you know, in, in, um, in California. And so that, that's really how that all, all um, worked out. So, you know, we ended up finally with the, the lawyer who's pursuing the parentage order. So for people who don't know, when you do IVF, when you're going to have a baby, um, you go 
and apply for a parentage order before the baby's born so that when the baby is born, the intended parents can be on the birth certificate, that it's not defaulting to a surrogate and then later getting changed around or that they could take the baby or all kinds of stuff. So that's routine, you know, a matter of course, and I, my understanding is it's pretty routine. Our lawyer had said, you know, I think it should be okay. I'm feeling pretty good about it, but you guys should definitely come in person to the hearing to do that. And um, so we did that and the judge came in and said, like, I've read, you know, what, I don't know the right term, brief, your application, whatever it is. And I know you guys want me to do this. I don't think, I don't think we can do, I don't think I can do this. And here's why, you know, and she was basically saying that while there's a law that exists in California to have multiple parents on a birth certificate, it's never been used in this scenario. It's not, a, you know, she's not sure it was intended to be used in this scenario, that it's intended to be used like that the child has suffered harm because, you know, uh, additional parents weren't named in that scenario, such as like, you know, maybe the mom or father's incapacitated, but the grandmother is going to be the parental figure moving forward and should be on the birth certificate, or there's, you know, the, the misattributed paternity, but they were, you know, all these different scenarios. But she, she was basically saying, this child needs to have had harm for me to find. I just, I just have to say that when the movie comes out, I assume there'll be a movie of your lives, that this is going to be, this courtroom scene will be one of the apex of the movie where the judge is like, no, I deny this. And then you guys come in and tell them that. Yeah. And, and so I just was kind of floored because we had been coached and prepped as like, it's probably gonna be fine, you know? Um, and she had said, and our lawyer was, you know, trying to make some legal arguments. And she had said, no, you guys have already anticipated that this might not work out. You guys already went to all the consideration to make separate parentage agreements and all the stuff. So you guys already considered it. So like, why do I really need to do it? Um, you know, if you don't like it, just like Ouch. appeal me. Or why did you Which come is worse? Why because you... like the point was, you're like, we were trying to be so careful just to be safe, but we expected you would actually take care of us. Yeah. And so she was like, would you just come back, you know, when the child suffered harm and then you'll have a stronger basis to make this argument. Um, and so I just was floored and I'm the kind of person where like, I can just get really indignant. And I just felt like, you know, we're not doing any of this to be trendsetters. Our whole reason to do it was to protect our children. You know, we've got assets and the way that for better or worse in this country, like inheritance rights work, insurance is tied to your job, but that who's eligible to that depends on if you're married or you're not married. And so we really were thinking of like, you know, Ian and I have great pensions. If we're hit by a bus and we're not married, it doesn't go to our spouse. It can't go to just a random person you name. Um, you know, if one of us isn't the legal parent, then it can't go to our child, you know, or Jeremy has great insurance coverage through a union, but where he has no additional cost, but it might cost us a lot, but he can't access if he's not a parent. So how do you choose who the parent is? So it's not as simple as, you know, as reflecting what the reality of the situation was. And the best way that we thought we could protect our children was by having us have legal rights and responsibilities to them. And here the law is trying to like prevent us from being responsible for our children is kind of how it felt. Um, and so I just thought, okay, I understand her hesitation. I'm kind of a little bit floored by saying like that they would have to be harmed to then make a basis. It just seemed crazy to me. And I just, and it seemed like the hearing was just going to end. And I kind of leaned, I leaned over to the lawyer and said like, can we speak? You know, and I was talking out of turn in court yeah. and saying like, hey, my client wants to speak. Can you, can they be sworn in so they can make a statement? Because I just felt like, okay, if you're going to deny, deny me, that's fine. But I'm a person and I want you to hear what I have to say, even if it doesn't change your mind. I don't think you should have the convenience and like luxury of not having to view me as a person to, to make this, this 
adverse judgment against us. Right. So they swore us in and I was just like off the cuff. I mean, I didn't have anything prepared and it was just me really saying a lot of, a lot of this of, of like, here's the implications. And I understand what you're saying about that. There's no harm, but it, I find it hard to believe that there's no harm or, or that like the child would have to be harmed to prove that would be in their best interest. And here's some examples and things that I'm thinking about in my mind. And here's our intent about all of this. And, you know, kind of just had a little off the cuff spiel. And then um, Ian and Jeremy were given opportunities to speak as well. And, um, you know, she kind of paused and regrouped and considered it. Oh, can you guys still hear me? Yes. Yeah. Sorry, there's a little static there. And um, she came back and said, which I thought was really interesting. She said, well, I don't think I can find that there's harm to the child. Like, I see what you're saying, but I don't think I can legally find on that point. But I've gone back to the text of like the law and it says the intended parents shall be the parents and it doesn't say the number or the gender and yeah. the three of you are going to be the parents. Right. So I, and so she found on that basis, which to me was so, so kind of like this, such a plot twist because it felt like, Oh wait, this is some kind of conservative textualism reading of the law that is finding in our favor. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's like, it was just so, so that it was just, it was totally like shocking and, and thrilling and like people were crying in the, in the courtroom. It was, it was a big surprise. That's a, was there like cheering and like confetti coming down from the ceiling? <laughs> there was no confetti. It was a San Diego Superior Court. So I don't know if you've been there. Ooh, I've been there. Yeah, like, they I don't just, have that. Yeah. It's kind of a dump. Yeah. Okay. In, the movie, in the movie, we might embellish a little bit. Yeah, we might embellish. Um, that uh, the, the the big plus there was we really had a number of family members supporting us uh, in the courtroom, and so there were lots of tears shed, and that was uh, it was kind of beautiful to see that as well. I love that so it much. It is uh, amazing. I I know, like we <laughs> we get a little speechless about it because it's so groundbreaking. I mean, what it, it is so groundbreaking and so amazing for us, and because we're in this realm all the time. But I mean, the more important thing here tell us about the baby, you know, like this is the whole apex of everything, right? Like you, yes, you got the parentage, but, but how are, how is your baby? What, what do you mean that the court order isn't the apex? The baby. Oh, come <laughs> on. Uh, you <laughs> a different movie. I'm all about the babies. <laughs> Jeremy, you want to take that? Um, well, the baby is great and is now six years old and she is a titan and a force to be reckoned with. And um, <laughs> I do want to mention our second child who is exactly the child we needed because he is sweet and kind and nice and is accommodating to his very domineering older sister. And um, mm. he also has three parents on his birth certificate, but it was just basically a nothing. We didn't even have to show up to court the second time. Uh, Alan, who is our family worrier, was worried about... Um, is it going to, are we going to get it this time? But because the judge had retired, but it was absolutely no problem. And um, he was, uh, you know, our lawyer just went in and handled it all for us. So yeah, our kids are great. They're in um, school, the same school together and um, are just really amazing and wonderful. Do you, So it's happily ever after. Do you find yourself facing any special obstacles would people learn about your family structure or with institutions relating to your children you know it's funny i was just talking about this um short answer no we live in san diego california and fortunately we are in enough of a bubble that we have had 
really no issues at all with coming out um, and letting people know about our family. I'm sure there's lots of, wait, what's going on um, when we leave the room? But to our faces, it's been fine. <laughs> the thing that is so funny, because this is just starting to get a little fatiguing for me, um, you know, coming out is such a big part of a gay man's life. It's like, you know, I'm being my authentic self. Well, when you're in a thruple, you have to come out constantly. I mean, every, I actually feel like it's like yeah. weekly. It's like every time I meet a new person, if it's like, seems like we're going to be in each other's life, it's like, oh, and actually I, I have two partners. And, and then you feel like you need to legitimize it because it can feel like, oh, it's just about sex or something. And so I, I find myself doing this like quick spiel of like, and we have two kids and are, we're actually the first time we've been together for 10 years. And it's the first time that we we're all on their birth certificate just to like justify and rationalize my family. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the reason why it's on my head right now is I'm realizing, oh, our kids are just getting to the point where they're going to have to do that. So, yep. you know, both of our kids, it's their first mm -hmm. weeks of school and they're bringing in the little family projects of the make a board and put pictures of your family. And so we kind of talk with them about, oh, people might think it's interesting or weird that you have three dads that all live with you. And you just should say like, oh, I'm so lucky. I have three dads and I have three people that love me. And um, you know, we are not naive and we recognize that, um, at a certain point in adolescence, you just want to fit in and you want to be like everyone else. So we know that at some point this will be hard for our kids. Um, kids don't want to be different and, um, they want to blend in. It's nice that the thing that is setting our kids aside is that they have more love and more resources for them. But, um, yeah, so it is, it's, Day to day, it's fine. We're very good at it. We have not met any opposition, but I am just kind of finding myself a little bit fatigued with constantly having to come out to people. Well, there have to be also a lot of like institutional barriers, like when you fill out a form, you know. That and has... that actually doesn't bother us. You know, we've always okay. been someone who we don't need society to conform to our family. We are fine having our family fit itself into society. So. I actually reached out to the teachers of my kid's school and was like, hey, this is our scenario. I don't want it to you to think like, oh, who are these guys picking them up or who are these guys in the picture? But I said, like, we don't get offended if you guys do a Mother's Day craft. They have a mother in their life who they know and love and they call Mama Megan and, you know, it's fine. And so we are big on like, there's only two lines, but I have a pen and I can draw another line. So it's fine. Okay. So, um, Yeah. Well, we are so grateful for the time you spent telling us a bit about your family and your story. And we very, very much encourage um, those who want to hear more, all okay. the drama, so much more to go out and buy Three Dads and a Baby by Ian. It's an amazing book. I'll, I'll just give, okay. uh, I'm going to give my, my little two second synopsis. You should, everybody should go, go read it or listen. I did on Audible and I couldn't stop. Like literally, I just like sat and listened to it nonstop. <laughs> it was amazing. Well, thank you so, so very much for your kind words. We, we appreciate that. And we're, we're glad that um, some people find it interesting. And we hope that some people find it helpful as well. Thank you to Ian, Jeremy, and Alan. I'm so glad that we got all three of you to come on and share your story. And I, I love that your story kind of gives, gives some hope to those who might have not have a traditional form of family, that there are ways to make it work both practically and legally. And I know I gushed while at the end of the interview, but seriously, it's a it's a great read. So people should go check it out. 
Um, speaking of checking things out, right? I always have to segue myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, don't forget to go check out our group on Facebook. You know, the, we have our lovely little group. You just have to ask to join and tell us what your favorite episode is. Uh, not just say, I want to have a baby because I won't let you in if you say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> or you can give us a call if you have any feedback or questions. 303-997-1903. Also, I delete the car warranty ones now, so sorry, everybody. <laughs> um, but if you do say that you are trying to join the group to talk to me about my car's extended warranty, I will totally let you in. Uh, just say it. Um, thank you to everyone. Thank you to uh, Melissa, to Tyler, to Amanda on our team. And of course, thank you to all of you for being here with us and listening. 